My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we'll be talking about Polish master Jurge Skolomowski. I threw to Will because I didn't want to butcher his name right off the top. We have a whole episode for me to do that. And it's very possible I butchered his name mm. off the top. Did we watch a bunch of videos, including making ofs, where actors that he worked with said his name? We did. Uh, we tried our best. Listen, it wouldn't be this podcast if we weren't butchering a foreign name. But mm. hey, at least we tried. And this is a director I've always been interested in because of his prolific, very odd career that, to my eyes has always seemed to play a little bit in the shadows that you never hear people kind of highlight him that often. And some of you may have also seen the film that he co-wrote in 1962, Roman Polanski's debut Knife in the Water, as well as Andre Wyda's Innocent Sorcerers in 1960, his first film credit of any kind. But it's true that between those movies and EO, a lot of the movies exist kind of at the edge of the canon, you know? And I think that there is a power that a lot of his English language considered best films were difficult to get for a while. Because I remember looking for Deep End or The Shout and they were like, well, it's not available. Like, it's not on DVD. This was many years ago. It's changed since then. But I do think there was a mystique there. Well, yeah, they can be difficult to... His career can be difficult to place because he's a Polish filmmaker who sprang out of the Polish new wave in the early 1960s, but has spent most of his career abroad, particularly in England. So he's difficult to place in a national context. And that displaced quality is also, you know, part of the mood of his films mm. you know he never rose to the sort of superstardom that say roman polanski did he is also of course a painter a musician a writer a poet an actor and formerly a boxer yeah like if you look at his career in the 1990s he made a movie that he had such a miserable experience on he went uh, i don't want to make movies anymore unless it's something personal so he didn't do another one until 2008 as with his old friend roman polanski his childhood was shattered by the second world war his house in warsaw was bombed and he was literally dragged out of the rubble his father was killed by the nazis he was in the polish resistance and his mother i read today how housed a Polish-Jewish family in the attic. He went to boarding school as a child and, as I said earlier, spent much of his career working abroad, not in communist Poland. So I would say that much like Polanski, that sense of dislocation and displacement and a sort of confusion of identity permeates these films. But I also think that, you know, it's definitely from a Polish perspective that if he has spent a lot of time away, he's searching for it in his films, trying to understand it in a way. And he is a filmmaker that early on, he went to a film school. He worked with Andrzej Wajda writing one of his films. And that when he started directing films himself, he made them all about himself. He was like the ultimate like, hey, I'm in my 20s. I'm going to be directing films. I will also star in them. And they're going to be a little bit pretentious, very show-offy, like the one that I watched, Walkover, for uh, this. I watched it, too, this morning. Yeah, he stars in it as a 29-year-old kind of layabout, kind mm. of, well, layabout's the wrong word. Womanizer slash boxer. A drifter, you know? He's going from town to town and gets off in one small Polish town just because he sees a former classmate there, you know, a, a beautiful young woman. And she's on her way to this plant where she's working as an engineer, and he follows her around, and they form a sort of connection much of the impact of the film though is you know it's shot in black and white and it's set against this backdrop of you know 
Poland under communism, which honestly doesn't look that different from America under capitalism. You know, mm-hmm. lots of people grifting and barely surviving. This movie, when I was watching it, it felt like a lighter version of the cinema of Alexei German, the director of Hard to Be a God. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen his films. He does like I have long tracking shots, lots of visual information, and like that surrealism that permeates this like walk over at certain times you're like is this really happening is this like more of a stream of thought kind of movie yeah and i mean the way that the camera moves and walk over it doesn't necessarily it doesn't always seem like connected to the action per Mm -hmm. se it seems to have you know most in most movies the camera work and the editing is supposed to be invisible but the camera in this movie show off yeah it's always like drifting around and it seems to have a mind of its own and it's sets i would also say just the very movement of it along with the black and white cinematography sets a sort of like melancholic maybe even like dystopian vibe for the the spaces that they're in when i read that this film is like 29 ish shots and that it starts with like oh you're seeing this but then you're not that's just a reflection in windows to interconnect it into a longer shot i'm like ah yes i know what kind of filmmaker this is it's the kind of like film student has something to say you know, maybe perhaps a little bit self-involved, but this is a director that did it. And it's kind of like mesmerizing to watch play out. I mean, I have heard him described as like the cross between Polanski and Francois Truffaut. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. And like after Walk Hour and a bunch of films around that time, you had another one, Barriera and Rhysopis. Most of them like he starred in and they were very personal, autobiographical tinge films. Like the next one he made, Le Depart, was like his French New Wave film. It even starred Jean-Pierre Léo. And it's like, you can see a filmmaker trying to figure out, all right, what is my career going to be? Like Roman Polanski very clearly made a kind of American transition. Mm-hmm. And that's where he did most of his work through funding from there. Well, one thing that I think, you know, Skolomowski's best known films have in common with Polanski's is that slow burn, mm. uh, like I'm slowly going crazy atmosphere that they have. A kind of, you feel constricted watching it. The walls are closing in. And a kind of Nicholas Rogue quality too, where it feels like, you know, you're like sanity itself. Like the walls aren't just closing in, but they're like dissolving. And mm. what even are the walls anymore? And a lot of his films like Deep End, it starts and you think you know what it's going to be. Until it like swerves into, yes, this is what we set up for taking it to the extremes of where it can go. Basically, like how it would probably play out in real life. So Deep End from 1970, which I loved and is my my favorite of the ones that we watched for this episode. Most of the film, well, this one takes place in Swing in London. It's in bright, vibrant color. But we should point out, it's a very British film that mostly shot in Munich. Yeah, and by a Polish director who survived the Second World War, which I think all contribute something to its absolutely disorienting atmosphere. Most of the film takes place in an around a bathhouse and swimming pool facility where the protagonist works. And the protagonist is a 15-year-old disaffected boy named Mike. And the opening interview scene... I, would, I don't know if sets the tone is the right phrase, but like it sets something because he shoots it in such a disorienting way. Like sirens are going off. The editing is really rapid. He doesn't quite. Oh, well, the opening credits too, like take place with these like really close up shots over what looks like flash. And then you find out it's like 
a bicycle. But then you get a Cat Stevens song playing in the background, which sets like, ah, yes, it's like a nice, comforting mood. Oh, I know what kind of mood. This will be a Harold and Maude, if you will, even though that movie actually came out after this one. But anyway, his co-worker, this 15-year-old boy Mike's co-worker, is Susan, who's 25, and she trains him in the job. And they have an odd relationship. Before you can say licorice pizza, he's mm. obsessed with her. And their dynamic is... She she doesn't exactly discourage it. No. She goes back and forth between being cold and flirtatious. Mm -hmm. But she has a fiancé who is wealthy and kind of sleazy. And she also is having an affair with a gym teacher. Mm -hmm. So there's these two things going on. And then Mike's obsession with this... Let's use a modern description. Manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. And also worth noting can't believe I forgot to say that the bathhouse itself is a very toxic environment where the boy who's 15 is more or less expected to do light sexual favors for mm. the clientele who are mostly older women. Like they'll constantly be calling him into their change room to like, well, one like, of them played by Diana Dore was like an infamous bombshell in movies of the fifties. Mm. So there's like a, a satirical angle on having her be the one take Mike and basically sexually assault him, getting off by rubbing his body over hers against his will. Yeah, and you know, there's something about the visual and oral style of the film where it's like simultaneously abrasive and like warm and inviting. Yeah, well, all the walls of the film are painted in very bright colors. Like, there's even a joke at one point that you see one of the walls being painted red mm -hmm. as there's like an emotional thing happening in the foreground. But it's the way it's shot as well that it's shot really like from the hip handheld that all of these bright kind of things you would associate today with a Wes Anderson film mm -hmm. are grungy and you feel like you're in them as you're taking this kind of like dark journey into the teenage male psyche. Yeah and I mean I've rarely seen a movie that is so kind of accurate and evocative about like what a 15 year old boy sort of coming of age mm -hmm. is actually like. Like he doesn't understand what's going on and he's chasing it yeah. and taking it to extremes that you're like what are you doing and like you know he's he's being groomed yeah. to use the parlance of our times he's he's being horribly abused by this workplace and also he he like kind of likes it and is sort of confused by it and he's also not a very good guy no well the world revolves around him and like he asks a lot like well how could you do this how could you do this to me and it's like oh my god or oh, you're not this kind of person well exactly i mean so getting a little bit into spoiler territory here and i do encourage people to pause the tape and yeah. go and go and see the movie but you know he goes he, he starts like disrupting her dates yeah, he starts stalking like, her following her around and i don't even know if he knows what his end game is mm. but he's following her around and this leads him on a journey through the sordid sexual underbelly of london you know he sees a sex worker who basically offers herself up to him for free and mm. he doesn't take it because he's too loyal to her you know he's looking at you know the the girly shows a horny 15 year old <laughs> i think he, yeah i think he would have found a way mm -hmm. but he finds a life-size advertisement for her this the girl of the girl of his dreams you know outside a striptease club and he says to her this can't possibly be you it can't possibly be you she says well i don't know is it sure looks like me mm -hmm. you know and then the last act of the movie is this extended I mean, it's it's like 20 minutes long and it actually started the idea for the film, which is what if 
you know, you had to find something in snow and you had to melt all the snow to get there, mm-hmm. which is what you see them do step by step by step. Yeah. And and the the impact of it is like a siren going off in your brain. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of people talk about that, like, while the film stars Mike, it's really Susan's story played by Jane Asher. Mm-hmm. And she goes through like. It, it would have been easy for this film to be like, ah, yeah, she's like the femme fatale, like pointing all of these men to fight amongst themselves. But there's so much vulnerability there. She's as confused well. too. Yeah. And like the fact that she sort of at some times entertains his advances mm-hmm. and then at other times scorns them, I think it's like pretty realistic. And she has like this long kind of screed against the adult man that's in a relationship with her that really kind of brings her emotional journey to the forefront mm-hmm. and puts the center on her that I found so great in this movie, especially where it ends up, which I think most reviews, like they talk about how it ends because that's like the focal point, but don't ruin it for yourselves because Mm -hmm. it is genuinely like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the director said like, how do you reach this point? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get here? Mm -hmm. And when you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, that's that's how that happens. If Mm -hmm. these kind of feelings and acts are played upon the way that every crappy 15-year-old boy (laughs) thinks, this is where you go. Did you watch The Shout from 1978? I did watch the shout that's the other one that when people talk about this filmmaker they always bring up the shout a very unsettling movie so it's a, a would you be shocked to hear that the producer wanted nick rogue to direct it <laughs> yeah well it feels exactly like that doesn't yeah. it so it's it's about a young couple who live out in the country played by Susanna york and a young john hurt and a mysterious stranger played by alan bates shows up at their place and he's been he's lived in the australian outback for a long time he had a wife who was an aboriginal in fact, John Hurt at one point jokes, huh, you're in the Outback. Did you marry an Aboriginal? And he says, yes, I did. Mm-hmm. And I and I had children and I murdered them because the only thing that the Aboriginals understand is murder. And so that sets a bit of an odd tone for yeah. his, his visit there. And what happens for the rest of the movie, I mean... Describing the plot is a little beside the point. But you even didn't mention that this film is being told by the villain of the story. To a young Tim Curry. To a young Tim Curry. So you're like, wait, is this true? Is it not? And it's being told at a mental health institution, an asylum, Mm -hmm. to use the less politically correct terminology, where the John Hurt character is being held. Mm -hmm. And so I was like watching this movie going, boy, people really had like, ah, the mysterious white man who knows aboriginal mysticism and because like the last wave had come out the year before the peter weir film that has like a similar plot but i looked and the original short story is by robert graves from the 20s and it does have that aboriginal kind of like oh this white guy goes and knows this stuff and then brings it to an unsuspecting couple right because in this movie you know the alan bates character he's learned from an aboriginal shaman the the secret to a kind of shout the titular shout that if you hear it will kill you but that's not what really the movie is about though the movie the movie is really more something like yeah kind of like if nicholas rogue directed knife in the water this Mm -hmm. sort of like strange triangle that plays out between this couple and this man and the shout is almost not that important it could be anything like and it's really about like spirit and just being a weak man i get like knife in the water basically and it's such a odd film but it's also one that's like grounded in very interesting Mm -hmm. ways to make it feel normal without you know i love nick rogue but like a lot of his films are very odd like they're disconnected and it seems like here everything is trying to play almost like oh yeah this is an everyday with these weird elements Mm -hmm. that starts to kind of take over the film by the end Mm -hmm. 
Moonlighting from 1982. I mean, I really love this one, too. This one stars Jeremy Irons. It's set in London, but takes place against the backdrop of political unrest in Poland, specifically the trade union protests of the early 1980s. During this period, martial law was actually imposed in Poland to crush the unions. I believe, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, but food prices were raised while wages were stagnant. It was very bad in Poland. And the the unions actually had significant financial support from the West during this, reading the Wikipedia page that following Poland's transition to liberal capitalism, the union's membership declined substantially, and by 2010, it had lost 90% of its original membership. So <laughs> capitalism was not good for the union. So the main character is Noek, played by Jeremy Irons, who is an electrician from Warsaw who lands in London to lead a small team of workers who are renovating a house. The owner of the house is a wealthy government official, but the renovation is happening under the table, so mm. to speak. And I think something important about this film is that it was made in a rush by the director reacting to what was going on in Poland. Like, supposedly he put this together in a couple of weeks, shot it in a couple of weeks, and that, like, other than Jeremy Irons, like, the three men that are helping to build the house are, like, workers that the director knew and was working on his house to mm-hmm. play those roles. So Jeremy Irons, the Jeremy Irons character is the only one of the four workers total who can speak English. And you're seeing everything from his perspective. Like all of his thoughts are like whispered to the audience on screen, sometimes indecipherably because it's like so low in the mix. So all of them are, you know, strangers in a strange land here, but he's the only one who can communicate with the outside world. And he's the only one who has knowledge of the political situation in Poland at the time, which he keeps from the other workers. Yeah, because he doesn't want them wanting to return home and not finish the job, which is this prison that they've thrown themselves in. Meanwhile, all of them are sort of agog at, you know, this capitalist world that they're in, you know. availability of food when you walk into a grocery store all of these consumer goods but nevertheless money runs out as the film goes on and as the film goes on i would say the capitalist west increasingly looks like you know a terrible place uh, yeah like you know there's a recurring thing of the local convenience store where you know they're so vigilant looking for shoplifters to the point where like they're like the stasi or something where it's like you know like oh we see that you're in the store all the time but Mm -hmm. you never spend all that much money what's that about oh you 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 ride a bike here. Can we investigate the bike? Mm-hmm. You're not from here, eh? Well, I may have very, a few questions. Very interesting. And it is a movie that just like crushes the viewer as it goes along. <laughs> Jeremy Irons, not Polish, it should be pointed out. No, but but yeah, I mean, the, the atmosphere of London in this movie is actually to me not entirely unlike the atmosphere of Berlin in Procession. Yeah, it just like, exactly. It's just like heavy it squeezes you yeah and you know thatcherism is coming into play Ah, here thatcherism the old yeah the old war horse herself yeah yeah rest in piss (laughs) and so you can feel that is very evident as well you know this film like where it ends it leaves you so hanging and miserable that it like burrows into you that like you watch this guy and as he's doing it not telling the men you wonder like why is he doing this like what what is the end goal other than this is all he knows so he wants to continue it until there's that end point and he cannot keep going. Well, also, there's a bit of a question of like the amount of power that you have in a completely powerless situation. Yes. And like he he likes having that power when everything else is out of his right. control. They are strangers in a strange land. And the, 
then, you know, like he's shoplifting at the convenience store yeah. and he starts doing it out of necessity. But at a certain point, a he little kinda, bit of a thrill that he you can get, get away with it. Kind of gets off on it. He has a little bit of power. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to say, yeah, you go. If you can shoplift, get away with it, do it. <laughs> yes, but you will get caught. You will get caught eventually and punished. Yes. <laughs> so what we're saying is, you know, get a good job, pay all your bills, and you'll have a good life in this capitalist society. Here's what I'll say. It's easy to shoplift until all of a sudden it isn't yeah, it anymore. Isn't. Yes. <laughs> Will speaking from experience. Have you ever shoplifted anything, Will? I've done it. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, no. I think the statute of limitations is over. <laughs> too much of a good boy. Yeah. I once get got caught opening. Not a... lately, I hasten to add. <laughs> I once opened a magazine as a kid because I wanted to see what was inside, like the plastic bag. Oh. And the guy caught me and he was like, did you just open that? And I went like, no. He's like, then who opened it? And I was like, it wasn't me. And then he said, why are you looking at that pornography? No, it wasn't pornography. It was probably like a video game magazine. Yeah, or something like well, that. Well, a likely story. To which I say, why is this teenager yelling at me? What are you <laughs> getting out of this other than being a cog in the system? If I worked at some grocery store, I'd, I'd just... be like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it was the owner, sure. Okay. But it, it wasn't. It was just some guy. So he has made many movies after this, but... Listen, we have a limit of how many movies we can watch. Did you see EO? Yes, I did see EO. What did you think of EO? I mean, I liked it very much. And it's also like, you know, I I wish I could have seen it again for this podcast to see to to try to like find more of the commonalities. But like one thing it has in common with these movies is just that it's a disorienting visual experience. Mm. And also that like the donkey himself is kind of a stranger in a strange land. Why do you think that Skolomowski wasn't able to kind of get the success that someone like Polanski did? Because he had opportunities. Like, he did, like, a, a westernish film that starred Robert Duvall called The Light Chip, yeah. based on a famous novel. I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, some of that just has to do with luck. I mean, Polanski, you know, Knife of the Water became the film of the Polish New Wave. Mm. And then, like... Rosemary's Baby became a phenomenon. Certain certain movies, certain lucky things happen. I'm going to say one word, genre. And mm. that... Polanski worked in genre. It's true. Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown. Uh, the Tenant is a little odder, but like it's still kind of working in that horror realm. And other than the shout, Skolomowski didn't really, you know, play in those areas, which I think mm-hmm. makes him difficult to categorize, but he can have success at film festivals, which could perhaps get him funding for his next movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, he worked for a painter for like most of the 90s and the 2000s until he returned with Four Nights with Anna. And for the record, we did not have time to watch Essential Killing, the Vincent Gallo film. I know. I, I want to at some point. I, my, what I would like to see Skolomowski do at this point, now that he's 85, get back to boxing. <laughs> Mickey Rourke it? Yeah. Jump right back I in I think there. he can do it. I love that he came through with EO out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. And that this figure that's been around forever suddenly gets all this critical attention. When If you looked at the rest of his career, you would assume it would be like, oh, look, there's another one of his films at the film festival. And then he passes away. And then he tops it off with The an- Palace. Another screenplay for his old friend Roman. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, let's just talk about the Patreon because we consider the journey with this filmmaker. That's right. A little bit more Skolomowski this week. On Patreon, we talk about Roman Polanski's new film, The Palace, which is not legally available it played theatrically. But that's what's on Patreon this week. Do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters to Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Patrick, and he goes, What do you think about the idea of pure cinema? Is it a real phenomenon that filmmakers should aspire to? Is it nostalgia for silent films? Or is it just a cliche that means my tastes are better than yours? Or something else entirely? 
and a topic idea for you. One-time directors. I was thinking of Charles Laughlin's The Night of the Hunter and Robert Longo's Johnny Mnemonic. That's all I got. Thank you for your work, Patrick. So pure, we, we pure did, cinema. Wait, 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 we did an episode on one-time directors very early on doing this podcast because I know we did the honeymoon killers mm -hmm. and I don't remember what the other one is but you know another subject that I think there's interest to revisit yeah I would definitely be interested in that well you know pure cinema like I, I know what you mean when you say it mm. but but speed racer yeah the palace <laughs> 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 but but the an actual like definition of it mm -hmm. i'm i'm struggling to actually come up come upon like on wikipedia it puts pure cinema under non-narrative film and says is made up of a non-story non-character films that convey abstract emotional experiences through unique cinematic devices i know that hitchcock used the term when he was talking to Truffaut, talking about psycho specifically that scene after janet lee is killed mother bates leaves and then like the camera sort of drifts around the apartment and like it eventually you know lands on norman who becomes your new protagonist and hitchcock said words to the effect of that's that's pure cinema that's for us directors like we love it when it's not about the dialogue it's about psychology and mood being conveyed visually so what is pure cinema is it real i mean i like it as an expression if you're just saying that yeah like, i like that black and white photo of martin scorsese that's ironically put under post and a pure cinema yeah i like you know that picture where jean-luc godard is holding the film <laughs> yeah pure cinema yeah pure cinema is uh, a vibe man yeah pure cinema is like whatever you want it to be is pure cinema Stan Brackage or is it Graydon Clark or is it something uh, that moves you that encompasses you entirely and the mode of cinema is expanded to everything that it can be you know what you know what pure cinema is to me pure cinema is yeah something that can only be conveyed in the medium of cinema using its techniques so, that's a great definition yeah yeah so I think of like in Edgar Gielmer's The Black Cat when the camera is like moving through Boris Karloff's the, the basement of his huge mansion and that Beethoven music is playing dun, 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 mm. dun, and Karloff's voice is narrating and there's something about the confluence of those elements or in Edgar G. Elmer's detour when you're on that big coffee cup and then it pans up mm. to the face of our protagonist and the light falls a transition of you know dark to light around his eyes and his voiceover comes in telling you a tale of woe he's about to weave that's Pierce and I. or in Edgar G. Elmer's <laughs> minstrel man when oh wait no not that one no, no, no. Anything about that, that. Get that out of here. In Edgar G. Elmer's last film, the, I don't remember the, the title. The Cavern. The Cavern. And you when, see. When you see that cavern. You're like, ah, yes. Goddamn. Now cinema. that's a cavern. <laughs> well, thank you very much for the letter. I wonder if we, we could squeeze an episode about pure cinema. Like, this is pure cinema. Yeah. And we try to bring examples and define it. And we, we only talk about Edgar G. Elmer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Alexander. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will, esteemed thinker David Lee Roth once said, the reason the critics all like Elvis Costello better than me is because they all look like Elvis Costello. Mm. There's if, something to that, honestly. If you would allow a thought experiment, change the medium from music to the movies. Which contemporary director would be David Lee Roth and Elvis Costello? Keep up the good work, Alexander Roth. Michael Bay. David Lee Roth. Oh, yeah. Hang on. Who's, uh, a really, Paul WS who's a really muscular and handsome filmmaker? Well, yeah, Michael Bay, of who, course. Yeah, who, who I love. Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, Michael Bay saying, the reason that all the critics like Paul Thomas Anderson better than me is because they all look like Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I mean, 
if if he were to say that, obviously that would be a little simplistic. Nevertheless, obviously we are we gravitate sometimes to stories that are that we can identify with that mm. reflect our experience. Critics, you know. Yep. Etc. That may share your point of view your, or a your, point of view that you, at a certain time in your life, you are privy to. Your class background, yep. your gender. Kevin Smith, if you will. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting that we keep doing Kevin Smith as mm -hmm. a subject. Well, it's because that we he was very important at a formative part in our life. And it's like an old friend you keep checking in on. You're like, Oh no, what's happening now? And to our Patreon listeners who don't consider him a friend, I apologize. No, you just, you, you, you can skip that episode or it's like going to the zoo and seeing two creatures shaking the bars. Those creatures being me and Will. Yes. But what I'll also say is as we watch these Jersey Skolomowski movies or, you know, any any great filmmaker honestly like you know i was just watching ozu's an autumn afternoon and like those are universal stories yeah you absolutely know? the story in moonlighting the skolomowski movie like you know that could happen today mm -hmm. in our country you know i mean it is happening today yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no it, contest sadly it's not happening but <laughs> yeah well so our next letter is from michael and he goes question on rare physical media hey justin and will thanks for introducing me to the films of michael j murphy the dragon lives again thrilling bloody sword and beyond i was wondering if either of you have a holy grail of acquired or to be acquired rare physical media i've purchased some really cool dvds and blu-rays with rare or out of print sticker and often found them listed on Amazon or eBay for a few dollars. I've yet to find a truly rare item to add to my collection, and I'm not really sure what to look for or how to find it. Thanks, Mike. Well, there aren't that many. I feel like I have Especially a now. Yeah, especially now. They're easier to find than ever. Keep getting re-released. Yes. But are there... I mean, I'm definitely... I can definitely be victim to the aura of authenticity where, mm. like, man, I remember... 10 or 15 years ago, I used to like to get the VHS tapes of the Friday the 13th movies, you know, Friday the 13th really? part four, they would have them at BMV and you get them for $5. And I was like, in my early twenties, I would say like, yeah, this is the authentic way to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. And now you can't get those movies for anything less than like 50 because mm -hmm. the, the, the freaks have also figured that out. So I am like victim to that mentality sometimes. And like, I don't know if somebody showed me the original VHS copy of Tales of the Quadhead Zone, which I well, think that's is like different. That's like thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Or Things or one of those movies. Or, you know, I was just at the Vinegar Syndrome store in town and they had a copy of the VHS of Lucio Fulci's Zombie for $125. Big box VHS tape. You know, I wouldn't mind having that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd pay 120 bucks for it. No, but. like I I'm not a collector in that way very much of like, I need that first thing because mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, like how book collectors can collect first editions mm -hmm. and like i mean you could hunt down like ah the first night of the living dead laser disc that was i think it was image entertainment put it out and mm -hmm. they were the, one of the first people to make a direct deal with george romero it's like yeah that's cool but there's also a million other copies after that like it doesn't yeah. have that much value to me as far as like out of print or rare items when i was a teenager i would go to stores like h&b and music world and i always had like a list of stuff that i was looking for i remember for like a year i was looking for paul verhoeven's flesh and blood 
But that doesn't exist anymore because the internet is out there. And yeah. I could literally get anything if I wanted to when I saved up for it. But are there editions that have gone out of print that might have like certain special features on them that you would want? Not anything that springs to mind. And oftentimes when I build something up in my head, like, oh, wow, I really want this. Like, I remember there was a South Korean DVD that had a special feature on South Korean, like classic action cinema. When I finally got it and popped it in, I was like, this is text. It's not even a video. So like, that's usually what it comes out to. There's not anything insightful enough that like, I need it really badly. Maybe so I was trying to think of like, what is it? What, what could there be? Remember South Korea put, and I've talked about this before, old boy out in the present that the, the movie. Oh uh, yeah. And that it has yeah. a Harry Knowles commentary track on it. Oh wow. Well, of ever, course you want that. I don't want, I just, it's again, kind of like, wow, I can't believe this exists. Yeah. Would I pay any money for it? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. What interests me? I mean, you said physical media now is just prints. That's what I want. Like 60 millimeter prints of things. Yeah, that is, that is kind of the next level. I do love that. I have a 60 millimeter print now of the three stooges in orbit. (laughs) So you did get that. Yeah, I got it. I don't Uh, know what I'm going to do with it, but, I say that again as well, but like for me, those 60 millimeter prints, like I'm going to scan them and then I don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like holding it onto it as an item that, cause I'm not going to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Like I'll give it to Will or I'll sell it again. But like, like sometimes I'll send me and Will, we cannot look at eBay for 60 millimeter prints well, because we keep getting golden inch of video ideas. Yeah. Because our tastes are too vast. And I don't say this as a compliment. I mean, like, like, Oh wow. Think of what we could do with this. Will just got a print. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to say what it is though. I want to leave it in the air because can, can, like, I, can I say, I'll, I'll say that the director is not Edgar G. Elmer, but he's somebody like Edgar G. Elmer. Yes. And like, I don't think I could sell this, but like I sent it to Will and Will's like, I got it. I had to get it. I, and and we are going to make it available. We're going to make a scan of yes, it available we're do in something. some way. Maybe I'll do like, it's just so much, but like I a don't, little Blu-ray. Like, I don't know. Like, like a sort of limited run, yes. like, like 100 copy thing. Yeah. Something like that. As long as it's like less work because the film has value, and but it's it, not yes. that good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's another movie by the same director on eBay. Yes. That, you but, know. But it's, 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 I would say is worse is worse. than the one that you got. But then, but then you also start thinking, oh, we could really fill out that package with this one. We could, but again, the issue is it's that not like, good. it's not good. <laughs> and I even like started watching it again to be like, maybe there's something that's like, no, there's not. But no. like the print that you do, when we do a scan and we put it out there, that'll be the best version that will probably ever exist. And the reason that, that the reason that I got it was because it needs to exist. Yes. Because the only version it, that exists. It's like, so weird though. Like that. The movie yeah, is. The yeah. movie has for, for like a three star movie has value. Mm-hmm, you know, exactly. But I can't turn around and charge people. 20, maybe, maybe to the really dedicated people. But if you've been with Gold Ninja video the entire time, you'll probably go, no, but no, I can't buy this. Or will you go? Yes, here's my money. I don't know. What if I have an idea? What if, like, if people can prove they bought a certain number of Gold Ninja video releases, they, 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 they can get, get it like with their thing? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. We'll we'll strategize this. It may just be included on a double bill with something. Like, yeah. we'll put it out there. I mean, and there's another print that I recently got. That boy. <laughs> If I put that, that's going to be wild. And yeah. I wonder how that will go. But yeah, prints. What what are some like like golden, like holy grail prints you wish? Detour. Detour. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I'm honestly thinking about this only in terms of something for Gold Ninja Video. Yes. Or maybe we hold a 16 millimeter night yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point. So uh, Ed Wood movies, obviously. Mm-hmm. If I could get 
you know, any kind of print of Glenn or Glenda. Yes. That would be great. But that, like, none of those exist. No, fucking Wade Williams bought them all up. Did he buy them all up? Because yeah. it was a public domain, so I thought that they'd be everywhere. Well, you know, Paramount released Glenn or Glenda in the early 80s, and they collected some elements. And then Wade was, like, threw some money down and was like, mm. I'll take them. And that's why the... Agfa restoration looks so bad. Yeah. It's probably the best one they have. And Metropolis? That would be fun to have yeah. a print of that. You'd uh, think there'd be a million of those, but like one I would love to get. And when I started looking, I thought it'd be everywhere. But when I asked collectors, they said, yeah, that one doesn't pop up very much. Carnival of Souls. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. That it's not out there. Well, let's just say that if we found a print of Strangler of, in the swamp, <laughs> we might be able to do something with that other print. <laughs> we don't have Strangler in the swamp. Just we to don't. let people but know. But if anybody listening does, let us know. Do you, but do you think that one got, you would think maybe Strangler in the swamp did get shared around because it would have been in public domain. There would have been TV prints. Yeah. Because it was a Poverty Row film. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, and the other problem is, is that like when you look for Prince 2, there's a lot of Western ones out there that you're like, I don't know. There's no angle on this that like we could do something with this. Yeah. But like looking at the Facebook groups, when people pass away or they're trying to sell their collection, it's like a thousand Westerns. Yeah. That like that's what people who collect prints collect is Westerns, basically. Other than that, I'm trying to think of like what else could that's in the public domain that I would love to get my hands on. Well, can I just say that Golden Ninja Video may at one point put out Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yes, yes. That may happen. That may happen. It will definitely It'll happen. happen. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exciting, too. But, like, yeah, like, doing stuff with classic stuff really interests me, especially that most of the companies, because they pump out so much, they're just kind of like, oh, here's a Blu-ray, and it's $50. Mm-hmm. Like, Criterion has announced some stuff that you're like, hey, is the best you guys are doing? Oh, I thought of a Holy Grail DVD that I want. Oh, DVD. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So Ray Dennis Steckler. Okay. The great Los Angeles based auteur, the man who made Ratfink a boo boo and the incredibly strange creatures. So he ran a video store in his later years in Las Vegas and he would, you know, re-release all his movies on VHS. He would sell them there. He'd like make the tapes himself. He had a series of, and this is not good, but okay. okay to be clear, yeah. but I, I want to know what this was. He had a series of like audition videos where he would like do auditions for nude models for like, <laughs> like, Yikes. Video for movies that he was ostensibly going to make. And he would sell like 10 volume sets of these. Any evidence of this seems to have been scrubbed from the internet. I saw them for sale on eBay once and I didn't get them. And I would, I would like them not because I endorse this or approve of this. It sounds like very bad behavior on Ray's part. I just want to know what it was. So I know someone who is huge Ray Dennis Steckler fan. I don't know if you know her, but she, after he passed away, like they were selling all of his stuff and she bought, I think it was tapes. And she's like, there's home movie stuff on on the end of this. Wow. Like it was like tapes that he taped over his own home movie stuff. Oh my stuff. God. So it's all like very personal. I wonder if she still has those. Okay. Well, we'll have to talk about yeah. who this is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've probably seen her. I think she moved away, but like she did like B movie zines back in the day. I remember talking to her oh, cool. about this stuff. And it's like, now that that is like. That's the Holy Grail. That's the Holy Grail. It's like the home movies of Ray Dennis Steckler. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And hey, I, I want to put this out there. There. If anybody has a big 16 millimeter collection or knows someone that has 16 millimeter and has like those public domain films, let me know because like I don't even want to own them. Like I would just borrow them, mm-hmm. scan them, and then send them back. Mm-hmm. Like that's all I would do. And I'd be very upfront about what I'm doing, but like there's gotta be some people out there that are willing to do that kind of stuff. Like, oh yeah, I'll make like a you know a little bit of money on this print of Metropolis that I haven't played since <laughs> in 20 years. Yeah. Like send it out there. 
So if you want to send us letters again, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So from high art to trash, right? That's Will. right. Next week, I think we promised this last week, <laughs> yes. and I am raring to go. We are going to talk about Graydon Clark. Now, Will's all excited about this. Then he had a moment of sobriety where he's like, oh, wait, no, then I'll have to watch these movies. Graydon Clark was a grindhouse exploitation director. If you're a mystery science theater viewer, you may have seen Final Justice with Jodon Baker or Angel's Revenge. He also made such films as Black Shampoo, Satan's Cheerleaders, one of the two Lombada movies that came out in the 90s. Joysticks. Oh, Joysticks with Jodon Baker. Yeah, wacko. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing about Graydon Clark is, arguably, not a good filmmaker. Yeah, it's funny. You look at his filmography and you're looking for the good one. <laughs> well, The Uninvited is fun. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Yes. There's that one. A Cat Within a Cat. It's a horror movie. George Kennedy is in it. Or as my review said, not enough, though. Wow. How, pre- how prestigious. How could they get George Kennedy? I think it's like George Kennedy, Clue Gulliger. Yeah, th- there are certain Graydon Clark players like Jack Palance mm. and Martin Landau shows up in some of them, you know. Because Graydon Clark had a Al Adamson connection and like they loved putting old timey actors and it just continued with him. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. As per usual, I would like to thank some of our new patrons who include Jordan Payne, Russell Hall, Arcadius Machinia, Kyle Gustafson, Max, Maxwell Dickinson, Ty Trullinger, Harper High, Dan Young, Noah Priscott, Brendan White, Vocational Dragon, Maria L., Patrick McNally, and William. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Will, what if I could tell you, you could watch a new jerry lewis movie uh yes please all right let's just type in new jerry lewis film funny 90 minutes boom ai our video generation is gonna do it for us oh no yes have you seen like what's going around open ai i think it's called sonora man every time i see the, the letters ai You're anywhere like, I just, like, my eyes glaze over i don't want to see it i don't want to know it i know that unless it's steven spielberg's ai then you're like yes please well, yes please then i'm jonathan rosenbaum but yeah like i you'll see like ai created lord of the rings in the style of wes anderson yes. and it's like no no don't show well, me this you haven't seen like they got it like next level now that they're doing like full video stuff that recreates it perfectly yeah i don't i don't want to see it yeah Put, get it out of my point purview mm-hmm. and, but it's going to be unavoidable like people are going to start using it what do you think the future for this stuff is Oh, man. It's, I mean, it's depressing. I mean, the present is so awful. It's yeah. like you see just everywhere. Like, you know, you're scrolling. Like, have you noticed how bad Facebook is these days? It's awful. Where you're scrolling, it's just like all these random, like, pages that you, AI don't, generated. you don't follow. AI-generated pictures of, like, Taylor Swift or whatever. Mm. And it's just garbage. Even it's, the Internet's like that. They're, like, usually the first few things, you can start reading a few sentences. And you're like, wait a minute. This, a human being did not write this. Oh, yeah. Like, all the websites we used to like, AV Club, all that stuff. It's oh, all... I mean, the AV Club is like a graveyard with yeah. like skeletons moving around there. Yeah, they're like, doing AI articles. When you decided to scrape the entire internet to make fake pages about every movie that ever existed, you are in trash land at that point. But like... AI is still, you know, that's what it does. It scrapes the internet. It yeah, just creates... It can't from, create anything. Yeah. I mean, logically... If we lived in a just world, all this AI shit would be shut down immediately because yeah. it's just stealing.
stealing other stuff and using those assets to make its own thing to the point that OpenAI is like, we don't like to talk about where we take our stuff from. It's like, yeah, because you can't. You can't do that. And if yeah. people are arguing like, well, you know, a human being does that too when they're inspired. No, they're not stealing something directly. Also, human beings are not computers. That is completely different. Well, no, I mean, AI can probably create like a... 25th season episode of Law and Order. Mm. But could it make the first one? No, I don't it think couldn't. So. Yeah. No. And that's the issue at the end of the day. And people go, you know, this will be dominate everything. It'll make perfect images. Like it's good. And the I issue, don't want perfect images. No, I don't want perfect images either. But you could say like old timey and it'll recreate it uh. perfectly. And it's like we don't we don't want that. The argument I would like to I would like to say or I would like to believe is that like anybody can write. There's a million books, there's a million AI books. No one reads them because they're shit. They don't like them. Yeah. Like you can't like there is like a human cognizant you look at something and you go this is not right i know it was made or based on other things yeah and i really don't think i really don't think there is an organic demand for this sort of thing no there isn't it's yeah. like oh we don't have enough content the only organic demand is companies go hey i could do this cheaper by doing it this way that's right and then you know there will always be a few little like blue checkmark toadies who are out there being like whoa look at this we created a picasso that's better than the real picasso yeah. isn't that doesn't but it's still based rock? on a goddamn picasso yeah. Yeah, exactly. You morons. Exactly. Like you can't create something for itself. It can only copy other things based and on your prompts. And I believe very strongly that like art, you know, like if your relationship to art is you want something to just like act as a pacifier and, and you know, you're falling asleep to something that's familiar, then fine, maybe this could work. But if art is a sort of communication between an artist and an audience, if art is an attempt to put a finger up to the wind and see how what the atmosphere of the world is then that I, it can't do that yeah but it's not going to go away that's the thing like no. as it gets better and better so i'm curious to like what is the end point like where does it get used you can say like well an artist has a perspective ai art will never have that even if it's creating full motion video i mean like let's just say it is possible that i mean there's a whole you go on tubi you check mm. network tv like all the all the young sheldons of the world does that become ai at some point yeah i mean maybe yeah, probably. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't say one way or the other. I mean, definitely. If you go on Tubi, you know, it's funny. On Michael and us, we've done, and and Luke has made me stop picking these movies. But, <laughs> but but sometimes, sometimes I'm very tickled by these political documentaries that exist only on Tubi, and that are obviously AI generated. Wow. And the, and, and they're very much like it'll be called like. Trump the first year and then you start watching it it'll, there'll be a narrator that's like Donald Trump was born in 1940 and and many criticize like they're like Wikipedia articles on yeah. film and then there'll just be random stock footage mm. and I find those movies like very unsettling and strange mm. and and fascinating because they're like that evil yeah uh, that you're willing to just put out this garbage into the world and yeah and then I think about like who's watching this like people like they're clicking on it they, they, and they then all that matters them. is the click yeah and then yeah eventually like maybe some of those movies that are like like David Dakota maybe will be out of work because the sort of movies that he makes you know yeah but we like them because they're David Dakota films and because that, they have the human touch yes you know and like I, and I'm sure the AI bros would be like well we can recreate the human touch basing them on the David Dakota oh, film man. it's like it's not the same though like like we're just going to be it's going to be a classic itchy and scratchy is nice now we don't want to watch everybody goes out like rubbing their eyes <laughs> like oh wow the real world yeah. it's out there I don't know what is that point where you get there like because like 
the, yeah, there's so much information. If anybody can do whatever they want, they're going to get tired very fast mm-hmm. by the things that they can make. Of like Jerry Lewis, I don't know, starring with Jackie Chan in something. Ooh, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> no, no, thank you. And but the wild thing about AI is is that like how well it can do like visual effects stuff too, which is like the companies are going to start using that to do their movies, and then people will be like, well, yeah, I don't need. I don't need this. Man, I saw Argyle this week. <laughs> Have you seen it? No, I'm not going to see Argyle. Man, the special effects in that one. Holy, <laughs> holy shit. Matthew Vaughn is a director after Layer Cake. Each one of his movies, I've gone, I don't like these movies. They don't they don't work for me. Did you like Kick-Ass when it came out? I thought it was okay. Yeah. It just All of his movies, they feel off. And they've only been getting more off as he's been going I mean, along. Argyle really feels AI generated. Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah. That, like The backgrounds, everything. Oh my god. <laughs> so wait, did you do that on an episode of Michael and Us? No, I did it for Valentine's Day <laughs> because we wanted to go see a movie yeah. and we want we didn't want to like Madam Webb. We're not going to see Zone of Interest on yeah. Valentine's yeah. Day and it's like, well, okay, it's Argyle or it's the Sydney Sweeney romantic comedy and that's only in VIP. So, let's go see, you know, no, Argyle. We're going to laugh. It'll be 2 hours and change of our lives. We'll never get back. Yeah, what are we going to do? Stay home and enjoy each other's company? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's another sign that the movie theater is like, why don't you have more romantic movies out on Valentine's Day? People are going out and they're seeing, I do like that Argyle says from the twisted mind of Matthew Vaughn. And people are like, we love Matthew Vaughn more and more. Yeah, here, give me that mind. I'll untwist it. Whoops. (laughs) Looks like I broke it. I mean, Matthew Vaughn used to be Guy Ritchie's producer. Like all those early films, all Matthew Vaughn and Guy Ritchie, most famously doing the most boring commentary of all time on Snatch. Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. Like Argyle has a lot of scenes in it that really do feel like, like this is like if you put Guy Ritchie through the AI machine. Oh, yeah. Yikes. 